1: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Anthony Dillon.
0: My guest today is Dr Anthony Dillon, who I've come to regard as a wonderful Australian, and you'll see why very shortly. He's an honorary fellow at the Australian Catholic University and an expert, amongst other things, in Australian Indigenous affairs. He's been a regular contributor to public debate on Indigenous issues for over 25 years. He's written many academic articles and papers and dozens of articles for newspapers and magazines. Recently he's offered some really intelligent and thought-out ideas on the so-called voice to parliament uh, and ways forward more generally. So Anthony, terrific to have this chance to talk. Can we kick off we're all products of our backgrounds. Yeah. Tell us a bit about how you grew up, how it fitted together with mum and your dad. Your dad was pretty well known, pretty respected person in Queensland and across Australia, uh, and your community. Tell us a bit about sure. it.
1: Sure. Um, well, it's interesting, because when I talk about Aboriginal Affairs, which we'll get into shortly, I always say the ones who have made it have either been born into good circumstances like I was, so that's what I'll talk about now, or they've escaped bad circumstances. So yes. I stayed up front. I was born into very good circumstances, so an uh, Aboriginal father, English mother, two great extended families, who were great role models for me. I was taught what was, you know, what was right and what was wrong. Examples were set for me, and there was very little about race or culture. I was defined in, or you know, your sense of self worth was defined in your contribution to others and so when you had this input from two great families that's a pretty good beginning in life and then of course as you alluded to with my father uh, his accomplishments as australia's first aboriginal police officer uh, his commitment to honesty and integrity in the police force saw him give evidence the first one to step forward and give evidence of corruption first honest officer to step forward and give evidence of Corruption in what was called the Fitzgerald Inquiry in the Queensland Police Force back then.
0: That must uh, have required a lot of courage. Yeah. Oh, very. So did he model courage when you were? Yes.
1: Yeah. You know, backbone. Just uh, and he had good role models too. His yeah. family and parents too. So it's trickled down. I hope. Uh, so yes, it took a lot oh. of courage, knowing what the consequences could be for uh, not, you know, taking bribes and that sort of thing. One thing he did have on his side was not only courage but good physical stature which um opponents had to consider very carefully
0: i wouldn't take you on either (laughs) you probably can't see it on the cameras (laughs) cameras deceive people but uh, i wouldn't take you on
1: yeah
0: i wouldn't (laughs) want to meet you on a dark night if you were in a bad mood with me
1: (laughs) you got me laughing eh? now you're taking me off track Uh, i'm a fairly harmless butterfly i think so yeah good role models uh, both from the Aboriginal and the non-Aboriginal families. And it was about, you know, serve others, get an education, work hard, that sort of thing. It wasn't about your race, about your colour or anything like that. I've got cousins on both sides of the family and we're just, you know, all see each other as uh, as equals.
0: See, that, you know, I can relate to that at one level because I grew up in a rural community with a lot of Indigenous people. I went to primary school, a lot of Indigenous, uh, you know, kids. Um, and it was kind of never an issue and now it's becoming one and I'm seeing it being more of an issue for my kids kids than it was for me and how's this happened more generally how did you come to be a commentator before we go to there you've you've become a commentator on this because Uh, you've just said wasn't an issue growing up you all just got on
1: so well it was accidental I think I Hmm. got a job in the Queensland Government in the Health Department and I was looking after data collecting and analysing data, and so you get to know what the big issues are, and Queensland Health, to their credit, made Indigenous health a big issue. That was one of their their leading causes, and so I got to learn about the problems facing Indigenous Australians, got to know all the statistics, the problems, the contributing factors to poor health and what the solutions are and all that sort of thing, so it was a good education for me. But what I found was, in addition to reading the data, I was reading policy statements and documents. And I was seeing very often, you know, you'd pick up a policy and there on every page was, indigenous people should be looking after indigenous affairs. Indigenous people are the ones to handle these things. They've got the answers. What we hear today in the voice, which we'll get onto later. But back then, this was before I'd heard the term identity politics. I was seeing it in black and white in the policy statements about, you've got to have indigenous people taking care of Indigenous matters and I thought that just doesn't make sense to me because I was raised in a home where if you had a sore tooth you'd go see the dentist, you didn't care what nationality or race they were, you just wanted to hope that they were good at teeth, understanding teeth and you know so whatever service provider we went to it was just who was the most competent, good value, that sort of thing. I was, I was never told well son you know you need to see this Indigenous person sort of thing yeah, that's what I was seeing in documents when I was working for the government way back then. And I started to react against that. And it was just at a time, or just shortly after, the internet came onto the scene. So I was able to start Googling things and uh, finding out, yeah, this sort of thing was happening in America. Um, you know, where there's a separation and that sort of thing. And then I found out a small group of people, uh, led by Gary Johns, actually, in the Long Society, who had similar thoughts to me. And that was the first time I knew someone else uh, thought the same way, that recognising the commonalities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people far outweighs the differences. And that is a much better way to address Indigenous issues.
0: Yeah, it does strike me. We've got this terrible problem in Australia now. It's not just this particular divide we're talking about, it's everywhere, Mm. where we constantly prey on the differences and ignore the the mass of things that we all share in common as australians and can celebrate as australians we that's, don't celebrate anything no.
1: absolutely and you know i'm not opposed to recognizing or even celebrating differences only after you first recognize the commonalities but far no. too often i see individuals and groups defined in terms of their differences and i don't think that's helpful
0: yeah it hardly leads to unity but you've mentioned america there and Thomas Sowell, who of course mm. is an African American and a, must be one of the most powerful minds of the 21st century oh. or the 20th century. Yeah. Massively powerful mind. But he famously said this: racism is not dead. And remember he's talking about America. Mm. But it is on life support, kept alive by politicians, race hustlers, and people who get a sense of superiority by denouncing others as racist. Yeah. Is Australia racist? And uh,
1: second, um, who are those that I think you've called blacktivists? (laughs) Look, he may have been talking about America, but it just fits the Australian context so well. And so, you know, is there racism? Well, there's pockets of racism, as there is in every group. But to call Australia racist because of that, or in particular, white Australia racist um, because of Isolated examples is just not warranted, and uh, the analogy I use is I could point out some wealthy Indigenous people, okay, and you know some of them are architects of the voice. There's nothing wrong with them having a good income; they've they've earned their positions. But it would be dumb to say Indigenous people are rich based on that sample, okay. And I think it's dumb. To say Australia is racist, based on a very bi sample of only a few individuals uh, who could be called racist, mm. and you know even them, even then they're, they're often not racist. They just you know say some dumb things that someone wants to slap the racism article on there. So short answer, mm. no, I do not see Australia or white Australia as a racist mm. uh,
0: group of people. Something else that occurs to me, and I often think about this, racism. Is, is a greater evil. I've, you know, I'm a lover of history.
1: I'm and fascinated. And also, a, a greater evil is false allegations of racism and that's the problem we have now.
0: Yeah, well that's, that's a power tool.
1: Hmm. I think yeah. it's you know, just as serious, if not more serious, to make a false allegation of racism than what racism is. And that's is.
0: one of the things that distresses me. It's being bandied around everywhere at the yeah, moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know, historically, I, I, I'm a lover of history. And I stop and think of the unbelievable progress in the greatest human rights movement of all times, which was the ending of the African slave trade, mm. when you basically had, <laughs> inconveniently, a bunch of wealthy, privileged, white Christians mm. leading the charge to say, if you like, um, there's no difference between the value uh, of, um, of a person based on their skin. Mm. Uh, the greatest anti racist movement of all times and yet now as an academic you'd be aware that cynical theory, or critical theory sorry, mm. <laughs> christened cynical theory by, by people who understand it well uh, in our universities now spilling out into the community teaches that all whites are racist and particularly male whites are racist but no one else is racist. Mm. I mean it's a nonsense isn't it because if racism is a form of hatred of other people, hatred is pretty prevalent. Mm. It seems to me. And yeah. identity politics stokes hatred. Absolutely. What's the difference between hating somebody just because you disagree with them and hating somebody because of the supposed difference in the colour of their skin? Yeah, hate is hate. Hate is hate. Mm. But we don't talk about that. No. You know? There's a lot of hatred. There is, I'm going to say this, I don't think Australians are particularly racist, pockets of it, but we're getting pretty good at hatred,
1: Anthony. Mm. Well, um the hatred could be, some of it could be frustration, yeah. which looks like hatred. I guess when people are, you know, particularly non-indigenous people are told all the time, you are the perpetrators of violence, etc. You are the cause of problems for indigenous people. You know, they might get frustrated with that, yeah. and sometimes it spills out to hatred. Perhaps.
0: Yeah. Well, nothing. I mean, what do you think? Does hatred do hatred do more damage to the person who hates or the person who is hated?
1: Ah, uh, look, I would. Both, but I would probably lean towards it to the person doing the hating. Yeah. It keeps the cycle going. It does. Uh, the target can, they can have some psychological defences.
0: Yeah. Mm. yeah. In 2020, there were Black Lives Matter protests in Sydney. And one of the major grievances was this Aboriginal deaths in custody. Any death in custody is regrettable. Mm. But then it's regrettable if you've been put into custody too, because it means you've done something pretty bad. Um, but for decades, Australians have been led to believe there's a crisis of Indigenous deaths in custody. You, you've been challenging that for many years. Mm. Why do you challenge that?
1: Because an Indigenous person in custody is less likely to die than a non-Indigenous person in custody. So when people talk about this over-representation of deaths in custody for Indigenous people, that's because there's an overrepresentation of them in custody. Once in custody, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, that's bad, but once in custody, they're less likely to die than non-Indigenous people. But, you know, the narrative is once they're in custody, they're at danger of being slaughtered and all that sort of thing. And you asked me about blacktivists before. Blacktivists are those people who promote those lies and myths that Indigenous people in custody are more likely to die than non-Indigenous people in custody. They are not. Absolutely, they're more likely to be in there, and that's something that needs to be addressed. But um, the overrepresentation of deaths is a reflection of the overrepresentation of them in custody. Mm. You know, it's a bit like saying, "My among the Dillons, they're more likely to die in Queensland than they are in New South Wales." That's because ninety-nine percent of them are in Queensland, not New South Wales. Does that analogy make sense? Yes, it does. Yes.
0: Yeah, I get what you're driving at. Mm. Um, and so the real issue should be why are so many young Aboriginal men, particularly, in jail. Mm. And embarrassingly, I've had Aboriginal women say to me, we think there should be a few more in jail.
1: Yes. And um, It's not a popular thing to say, no, but it's they're not. saying
0: it for a very profound reason.
1: A- absolutely. Violence.
0: They're saying the law of the land should be upheld. Mm. Absolutely. And I don't hear, we'll get onto it later. But one of the reasons that I, I I'm so skeptical about the voice is I don't hear its proponents saying they're going to tackle this issue of the safety of women and children, particularly in the children's formative years, because I would have thought that's such an
1: important area. Mm, Absolutely. There are some ugly things we don't like to hear about, but they do need to be addressed. We can't just be ostriches.
0: Children with STDs, Mm. as a medico said to me the other day, a medico who has spent a lot of time working in Indigenous communities, she said STDs. In children, she said it doesn't, her words, jump off the shelf, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She was raising a very important point. Yeah, it's a tough issue that needs to be addressed.
0: So when I heard the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs saying that she would ask the voice, this was in in the context of people saying, well, the voice can talk on anything it likes, she said, no, I'll ask them to focus on education, health, jobs and housing in remote areas. All good things. And everybody said, well, that's good. Hmm. But my argument would be if you don't firstly address the safety, emotional, physical moral safety of children brought into the world first,
1: no use addressing those other issues because those young people are not going to be able to take advantage of it. Sure, uh, we need to intervene at various stages and at various hmm. levels too so I mean I think you know the big thing factor in addressing indigenous disadvantage, whatever you want to call it, is once you get some good things in place like parents doing something productive, meaning meaningful jobs, kids in school, a lot of those other symptoms of bad behavior, suicide, mm. that sort of thing, will start to evaporate.
0: Mm. Does
1: that make sense? Yes, it yeah, does. So you, know, you see those things, there are, well look, it's been said before, you get a you know, 100,000 non-Indigenous people in a place where there's no work, mm. and people sit around and get mm. paid to sit around you're going to ha- have bad problems you know it'll sit down money yeah it will eventually decay into just
0: that's not my term. that was noel pearson's yeah. just destroying it
1: yeah it'll yeah. you know those white people their behavior will decay into bad behavior um so what we have is not, not really an aboriginal problem but a people problem we need the people mm. to be yes living in safe home structures we need them to engage in society productively, doing things that help mm. others in society, have the kids in school. And then all those other bad things you'll find start to drop off. And yes, we do need to intervene with the law of the land. Uh, so it needs to be approached at a few levels.
0: The anthropologist uh, uh, Peter Sutton observed recently that the determinant of whether a kid was going to make it, so to speak, mm. had nothing to do with skin colour and everything to do with family and community. And yet it seems to me that the progressive movement will not talk about the need. Just they will not go there. Talk about the need for children to have a secure environment and preferably live in an environment where they've got their mum and their dad. They will not talk about it. And yet it seems to me to be a critical part of this problem. Basic. Yeah. What's wrong with our culture that we will not talk about this when the evidence is overwhelming? Mm. If you want to keep kids out of jail, Particularly young men,
1: you make sure they've got an effective father figure, but you're not allowed to say that. No, absolutely, because uh, again, it gets painted as racist. Uh, so I guess we've got to emphasise, you know, this cuts across all cultures. We're not just Suppose. we're not just singling out indigenous people. We're no, just we're not. saying that it seems to be more prevalent mm-hmm. there for mm-hmm. various reasons. Uh, so let's address it at you know across society. Mm-hmm. You've actually
0: commented, this is very interesting, um, that misrepresenting Aboriginal deaths in custody could
1: actually be to the
0: detriment of Aboriginal women.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think it's something a lot of us know, but I first learnt that it was, there was a story published in The Australian, there was this woman who was the principal solicitor at a w- Aboriginal women's legal service. And she said, so it's not me saying it, she was saying she's got Aboriginal women coming to her saying that they're concerned about if they report their man for misbehaviour, misbehaviour being a euphemism for yeah. violence, yeah. they're afraid, oh, well, they'll end up in custody, and if they end up in custody, they'll die. No, that's that fear is based on the lie that once in custody, you're more likely yeah. to die. So that's the sort of problems it has. You know, when you spread yeah. that lie that, oh, a man who goes to custody, again, we're not wanting to put Aboriginal men or any man in custody, just for the mm. sake of putting them in custody. It's, you know, we have the law of the land, we've got to protect society, et cetera. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's, it's got to be done. And it's good to know that if it, for an, an indigenous man, at least anyway, if they go into custody, mm. um, you know, they're not going to be slaughtered or anything like this. I jokingly said with Dave Price, who, you know, Jacinta's mm. father, who's a great man, I said, statistically speaking, Dave, if you and your grandsons end up in custody, you're more likely to die than your grandsons. Now, of course, age is a factor, so, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you level out age, Dave, being a white man, is more likely to die than his Aboriginal grandsons, st- statistically speaking.
0: Interesting reflection, isn't it? Mm. Let's try and tease out a bit more, though, this issue, because it, it is real of disadvantage. I mean, the, you know, in, in, but it's but it's uneven, as I think Stan Grant said to me, I don't think I'm misquoting him, that there are 30,000 Indigenous people now with degrees, I've heard others say even more, yeah. and they've mainstreamed. I met one the other day, a scientist, and he, 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 interestingly, he just said to me quietly, he said, I'm actually against the voice because bad things have happened, but I've got a degree, I've got a little business, I employ people uh, and I and my family love our lives as Australian, and we do not want to be marked out. Those were his words. Uh, But any Australian with half a heart has to be concerned about the issues that are given rise to The Voice, if you like. The communities where they're not doing well, and we've touched on this. Let's tease out where you would really start if you wanted to make a difference. I see, I have this great problem. I don't know how governments and bureaucrats and elites can go out and actually say to people, change your behaviour from on top. It somehow, it has to come from within. Sure. But how do you do it? How
1: do we inculcate it? How do we encourage it? Well, if we can point out to them role models, people that are similar to them who have come from their communities or communities like theirs, where they can let them know, hey, you can succeed and still be proud of your culture and have, you know, if you want to call it a connection to country, you can do that. And you mentioned Stan Grant a minute ago. There's a great clip I saw of him from about eight years ago with David Spears, yeah. was interviewing him. And Stan made the point that he was, you know, lived on a mission. His father had to move the family around to where he could get work. Yeah. So the father, and I've seen my relatives do it too, you know, they move around to where the work is. And Stan made the point, you know, you can move from being off, you know, move from country to wherever and still have that same connection. You don't lose your culture. And that's a point made by Stan. So sometimes we do need to look at these areas where the the employment opportunities are limited. You know, first preference would be to try and get employment in there. And Warren Mundine is good with this. He believes it can happen in, in every community and he's more optimistic than me so we should try that but I suspect there may be some communities where it's not viable to set up enterprise business and that sort of thing and you need to give invitations for them to move not necessarily to big cities but just somewhere where there's more opportunity to access good services and contribute to the society i.e. jobs that sort of thing.
0: I once visited a really remote community south of Halls Creek. Really remote. And a lot of money had been spent on housing and schools and what have you. But it was still a very sad community. And as we went in, I thought, how am I going to connect with the people in this community when I look like, dare I say, a politician and I've come from the south and they know I come from Canberra and they're going to think, ah, here comes another you know, naive person who's going to tell us all how to do it. And I thought, uh, the kids are the best chance. We can all connect via kids. So we, I went to the school playground where they were, they'd actually set up the kids. And uh, uh, it, it, it was, <laughs> you know what Indigenous kids are like. I sat down, picked up, a, you know, on the big tarpaulin, and, and started reading nursery rhymes. And they're all watching their big eyes. They all move in closer. I've got the photographs to prove it before I knew it. I'm at the bottom of a ruck of about 30 kids mm. and we're all laughing, all having a great time. It's a so, common experience. Yeah, that's right. You know what it's like and, and it was, it's, uh, I've had enough of it to sort of see how. And those kids hadn't been indoctrinated yet. No, but here was a really interesting thing. I looked around and I actually said to the elders, uh, there were three teachers at the school uh, doing a great job, great sense of vocation, um, but I said, where are the older kids? and the elders said, um, we don't want them here because there's no jobs. We've, we've mm. taken every opportunity to get them away to boarding schools down in Alice Springs and Adelaide and Perth. There's nothing here for them. They were being absolutely realistic about it. And yet, if I were to come back down here and say, that's a community that doesn't see a future for itself, that in itself would be... I'd be painted as racist for saying that. But that's yeah. what they said
1: to me. Mm. So, yeah, it um, does make a difference. Well, it shouldn't, but it does seem to make a difference who says these things.
0: Mm. I've often thought about that, because it raises the assimilation versus you know, separatist model that's been a source of a lot of argument over time. So you've got a lot of Indigenous people actually basically looking just
1: to move into mainstream Australia and be Australians. Yeah, and still be proud of their culture if they want to celebrate that. Yeah, but seeing themselves as Australians first.
0: Just before we come to The Voice, which I'd love to seek your views on, um, can we just focus a little bit more again on something that's, because I represented so many Indigenous communities over such a long time. Regardless of your cultural background, it has been the norm in all societies that have worked, if I can put it that way, that you accept responsibility for your kids. And what I saw so often was that all the old taboos had been forgotten and all sorts of licentiousness had been opened up so that there's no other way of putting this, far too many young men seem to feel they can bring kids into the world and accept no responsibility for them at all. And in fact, often be very damaging. Mm. And there was a famous leak cartoon that drew attention to this. Mm. Um, you know, the, uh, an Aboriginal or an Indigenous policeman confronting an Aboriginal man who'd had two months to drink, saying, here's your boy, look after him. And it was painted as racist. I read an article at the time when everyone was saying it was a racist cartoon saying, don't you understand that Indigenous women everywhere have been trying to get this issue opened up and finally a cartoonist does, does it, and all the civil libertarians want to shut it down. Mm. Because the point of the cartoon was, we want our young men to accept responsibility for the kids they brought into the world.
1: It yep. just seems to me this is a really key issue. Do you have any thoughts oh, well, on... Well, I've got a better story about that cartoon. Right. you want to hear it? Yeah. I would read the papers at 12 o'clock each night and I have a network where I'd send out articles of interest, you know, if it had something to do with Indigenous issues. I saw that cartoon and I sent it out to my network. It was just uh, a good cartoon that reflected what was happening at the mm. time. Thought nothing of it sent it to my father, and he said it was a great cartoon. That morning, Bill Leek phoned me to say he's being hammered for it. Bill and I were good yeah. mates. I of, what for, and he was telling me the story. I thought, that's strange, because it was just reflecting what was yeah. the news stories at the time, you know, kids getting in trouble, and that sort of, indigenous kids in Central Australia. I mentioned it to my father, my father phoned up Bill gave him support and praise for the cartoon and Bill went from here up to here and he would just tell people, well, Cole Dillon supports the cartoon. And I also had a conversation with Ken White about it. He said there was nothing wrong with the cartoon. The cartoon
0: went to the heart of the need Mm. to recognise the great losers in all of this are the kids. And it raises something else for me that makes me actually really angry. All we want to do is condemn previous generations for what's gone wrong today. Mm -hmm. We won't accept responsibility for what we're doing today. And I stop and think, I'll be blunt about this, Canberrans are going to vote overwhelmingly for this thing. We know that from all the research. Canberra's been responsible for refusing to listen. That's a very blunt assertion. Mm -hmm. But basically, too many people in that place to listen to the issues of um, alcohol restrictions, To containing gambling. You go to Alice Springs and, you know, I've talked to kids outside the casino at half past 11 at night looking miserable and I say, what's going on? They say, oh, mum's in there mm-hmm. putting the paycheck down the poker machine mm-hmm. and I'll go to school hungry tomorrow because she will have spent it all. And the day after that I'll be so hungry I'll break into the tuck shop and then I'll be up before the cops. Mm-hmm.
1: That's what a boy said to me.
0: And, but in the name of civil liberties, no, 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 you can't. In the, name, in
1: the name of political correctness yeah
0: that's right so <laughs> so we've got this great problem we won't confront what we've done we've not upheld the law of the land mm-hmm. when a two-year-old presents with an std and nobody's brought to justice for it mm-hmm. what a future generation is going to say about the way we have failed in our responsibility as a society
1: to absolutely stay? i've had uh, one police officer and one social worker tell me they believe, this seeing it happen, that you have indigenous adults now mm. who are complaining, saying, when I was a kid, I should have been removed. I should have been taken better care of. So I would not be surprised if we get that avalanche of lawsuits one day, where you get this generation of indigenous people say, I shouldn't have been left in yeah. my culture, in my home, I should have been put in a good home. I should have been rescued. I should have been saved.
0: Even more basically, why was the law of the land not upheld? Why was it a blind eye turned to the fact that I was being abused? Exactly. My life ruined. Mm. And my point here, and it's a really important one, we seem to lack the humility now in modern Australia to say we're not getting everything right Mm. because all the blame for what's happening here belongs to our forebears. It's all about frontier violence. Mm. It's all about dispossession. I'm not saying they aren't real issues we need to address, but
1: we won't accept responsibility for what we're sure, doing. Sure, look, and I look at it this way, I mean, colonisation, that's one factor, okay? but there's many other factors, yeah. and we know that there's many successful Indigenous people who are, you know, seem to have dodged this colonisation bullet. So it doesn't explain everything, doesn't explain a lot. But to me, it's a bit like a fire. If there's a fire raging and I want to put it out, I'm really not concerned about the initial spark that started that fire. I want to know what is the current oxygen source and I want to starve that fire of the current oxygen source. And that's what we need to do. What is sustaining these problems today? And it's political correctness. It's governments that lack a bit of backbone. Um, It's the obsession with romanticized culture. It's the obsession with symbolism and that sort of thing.
0: Romanticised culture. Um, I grew up in the Gunnedah area, went to school in Gunnada. Gunnedah is enormously proud, the locals, uh, of um, the story of the Red Chief. Now, he was a, an indigenous leader of that tribe, lived about the time that Captain Cook sailed up the east coast of Australia. And a fair dinkum, full size hero. It's an incredible story. But as you read the story, it was written up by Ian Idris, but it's historically, it was, you know, that incredible oral history capacity. Every tribe had an oral historian and they, you know, they would pass on the stories from generation to generation with great accuracy. Um, and that's common to all cultures, pre-writing, as I understand it, or most of them. And so you got this extraordinary story that was set out by an early police officer talking to the oral historians of the local tribe. And what strikes you about it is that you had this man who saved his tribe from internal corruption. The politicians, the elders had become very corrupt and they were pinching all the young brides. The young men were restless and unhappy. The tribe was in terminal decline. That's the story. And along comes a hero, turns it right round. You know, every culture has those stories. So there's the good and the bad. And he eventually saves his tribe from takeovers from surrounding communities. What's my point? My point is that every culture has good and bad stories, heroes and villains. We shouldn't romanticise. We ought to be saying let's put our accumulated learning, if you like, into the common pot and learn from the bad things as well as the good things. And this idea that the dividing line between a good culture and a bad culture in this case lies between a romanticised view of indigenous communities in the past and the terrible, terrible uh, colonisers that we all are. Hmm. That's just a route to hatred and standoff, uh, division
1: and endless uh, uh, conflict isn't it? Yeah. Look anyone who's done a little bit of study or say picked up Peter Sutton's book Politics of Suffering knows that while Pre-colonisation, traditional Aboriginal culture certainly had aspects of beauty about it. There were some very rough times there and things we don't like to talk about which we're not going to in this session. People can do their own research. And you know, white culture is no different if you go back. So we're not not picking on Indigenous culture. All cultures, if you go back, you'll find some things that weren't, by today's standard or any standard, weren't pleasant. But it was Mm. what was done. Can I ask you then, you've expressed reservations
0: about whether you think the voice is a mechanism that will help or not help. Mm. Can we open that up a bit? How do you see it and why do you have reservations?
1: Oh, I have. where to start? Well I guess the the main one is, it's premised on Indigenous people don't have a voice. And I'd like to know, in what sense do I not have a voice? Could someone describe that to me? They might say, well, you're okay, Anthony, but it's other disadvantaged, poorer ones who don't have a voice. Well, just like some poorer, disadvantaged, non-Indigenous people, do you say they don't have a voice as well? And when you look at those poorer ones who are often, not always, but often in remote communities, they do have people from their those communities communicating with leaders and Indigenous experts and that sort of thing. So, the whole premise of they lack a voice—that's not a not a good premise. It's wrong. The other matter with the voice is we haven't heard a clear plan for how it will solve the problems facing Indigenous people. We just hear, well, what we've done hasn't worked, and I agree with that. But then there's this is a bit of a jump of, well, it hasn't worked, so therefore this thing must work. Not necessarily. I mean, it's. We should consider it with other options, but I haven't seen a good plan, a logical argument for how this mechanism will address the problems we know exist uh, that are affecting far too many Indigenous people. And you know, we know the the right areas. And Linda Burney has mentioned this. You know, employment, education, and you know, many people have mentioned that. But we do have to to close the gap. We do have to do some hard work and have some tough conversations, which many people don't like doing. And this whole thing of, of voice is a nice neat little package. It's much more easier, much more easy to comprehend and accept. And to me, to use a uh, analogy, well, I don't know if analogy is the right word, but something similar, I've said before, we had the same expectations about, oh, once we get an indigenous person as the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, that will fix things, that will make things different. Well, we had Mr White, and no disrespect to Mr White, it didn't make any difference. Apparently he wasn't the right sort of Indigenous person in the eyes of some. So we've got a new person, Indigenous person filling that portfolio. Again, we haven't seen any improvements. Again, I'm not disrespecting Bernie or White, I'm just saying, you know, this simple solution of just put an Indigenous person there in the pl- in the portfolio and that'll fix the problems is nonsense. And I think having this new thing called The Voice where it gives voice to Indigenous people and they've already got voices again nice neat little package doesn't do the hard yard so. well,
0: One key argument that uh, people put up in support of The Voice is that it's been designed by Indigenous Australians, that's Point one, And secondly, that it's overwhelmingly supported by them. Um, according to this view, voting yes to it is a profound step towards reconciliation. I'd have to say we're not seeing much reconciliation at the moment. It's divided no. us down the middle as a yeah. country. But but, do you think it has been really designed
1: by Indigenous people? Well, when you say them, you <clears throat> in that sense, you mentioned the word them, designed by them or something. And
0: well, I meant designed by, they say, <coughs> by Indigenous
1: them, people. Yeah. What, is that, what does that word, them, mean, you know? When we say them, referring to Indigenous people, this group, this group, you know, whoever. I mean, it really should be some Indigenous people have supported and some have not. Where the split is, I don't know, but I certainly know there, is, there are many in both camps. But we shouldn't assume that this is what the Indigenous people want. We should be honest and say, this is what some Indigenous people want. and what I find particularly interesting is, we know that the Indigenous architects, who could be the Indigenous architects of the Voice, who we should call, I guess, the, the leaders of this movement, this, the Voice thing, mm. they've done very, very well without the Voice and without treaties and that sort of thing. So I, I see a problem there. They should be using their voices to say, hey, to all the, those disadvantaged Indigenous people, if you want what I've got, you've got to do what I've got. You've got to walk the path that I've, I've walked. And like I said earlier on, they've either been born into good circumstances or they've escaped bad bad circumstances and got themselves into good circumstances where they had access to safe environments, uh, fresh food, vegetable shelter, educational opportunities, those sorts of things. But you know, to assume that this blanket statement that the Indigenous people want it, Mm. that's a bit misleading.
0: The the reason that I personally was initially, very early on, decided I didn't feel I could support this, quite frankly, was that I just genuinely and passionately Mm. believe that the Constitution of the nation should be a dry, dusty document Mm. uh, that doesn't romanticise in any way, shape or form, and that it shouldn't distinguish between Australians on any basis at all. Um, And in as much as it does already, that Mm. perhaps should be the subject of a Constitutional Convention to work out whether it's wise to have those references that are in there now. Mm. And a few other things like the States Commission that hasn't met since the 1920s. Maybe we need to tidy that up. But but this is a Mm. really important point. I find that 11 years ago, Noel Pearson, who now wants to put something in the Constitution, believed then it was a very bad idea, and I'm quoting him. As long as the allowance of racial discrimination remains in our Constitution, because it's there in very mild form already, it continues in both subtle and unsubtle ways to affect our relationships with each other. Though it has historically hurt my people more than others, racial categorizations dehumanise us all. It dehumanises us because we are each individuals and we should be judged as individuals we should be rewarded on our merits and assisted in our needs. Race should not matter. Hmm. Amen. He's just encapsulated why I don't believe this should be embedded in the Constitution for one main reason. I'll come to the other reason in a moment. But, but what, why has it changed? You could say the same in America. I mean, you had Martin Luther King. He was a hero for hmm. saying it wants to be about, he wanted it to be about character, not about skin colour. Now in America, it's all about skin hmm. colour. Why has someone like, no, and I don't dispute that he cares deeply about Indigenous people. Don't dispute that for a moment. But just 11 years ago, he was saying any reference to race in the Constitution is a bad idea for his people and for Australians. Now, he has a different view.
1: How How do you see that? Why, why has he done that? Yeah, oh, I don't know, to be honest. Um, he's been swept up uh, in the movement, wants to be Part of this revolutionary thing, but perhaps he's looking for his own yeah. Martin Luther King moment. Yeah. I don't know. I agree with you. He does care for indigenous people, but um
0: so what? I'll tell you what I find outrageous <sighs> about it. There'll be people who'll say, "Oh, you're racist <coughs> for not <clears throat> wanting this in the constitution." But here's Noel Pearson, just a few years ago, mounting the very reason that I don't think it should be in the constitution. Nobody says he's racist. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, it does seem to be a double standard. Um, and, you know, we make too big a fuss about race. I'm not saying we should pretend it doesn't exist, but certainly when I used to do guest lectures around the place for uni students, which was always a pleasure, I would always let people know, I yes, I have Aboriginal ancestry, I have non-Aboriginal ancestry, English ancestry, a few, perhaps a few other things. I'm from southeast Queensland. I'm a Sydney person now. I'm heterosexual. I have Christian values. I'm male, and I have all these things that make up who I am. If you elevate any one of those significantly above the others, you're going to have problems.
0: That's identity politics.
1: Yeah, and so we, you know, should um, not just pull out one thing and elevate it, but you know, see the whole person, realize that yeah, okay, race is there, but it's one Mm. thing. Uh, And coming back to what I was saying before, recognising these differences is fine, but only after first establishing the foundation of recognising the commonalities, Mm. which far outweigh the differences.
0: Amen. Um, And the second reason that I really, and this goes to the heart of why I don't believe this model will work, it's precisely because you are going to put it into the Constitution for the reasons that Noel Pearson outlined and believed in 11 years ago, mm. I actually think what will happen is it will create an activist's picnic ground. It won't be mainstream Aboriginal people <coughs> just wanting to get on with their lives mm. or wanting to be lifted out of difficulties. It will be the activists. Let's be honest about this. Mm. I mean, Marcia Langton made the point that Aboriginal politics is often very vicious and you do see some very ugly activism. I think activists will look to make trouble with this. Remember, we don't know the detail of what it's going to look like. Mm. But it will almost certainly be something activists will want to use. And that will rebound in the same way that it does if you show favouritism <coughs> to a kid in a classroom yeah. with the rest of the community saying, you're just making trouble. And I, I, in the absence of any real detail about what this thing's going to look like, which is insulting in itself, asking us to pass a bank
1: check, mm. If you have that problem,
0: it will backfire very badly, I well,
1: think, against indigenous people. And also with the activists, you may have lawyers whispering in their ears. Yeah. Anything to do with the Constitution, if you change it, there's going to be new interpretations. It'll lend itself to new interpretations and that sort of thing. So, um, But you know, I'm not a legal expert, so I won't say much more.
0: Anyway. Um, It is, to me, it's very concerning. (laughs) Tell me, um, the argument over whether the Uluru Statement is just one page or whether it's 26 or whether it's 120, um, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, but certainly it does seem you can't get away from the fact that that supporting document indicates that, as one person put it, the voice is a hook for other things like treaties and reparations.
1: And look, I think most of us already knew that, Uh, It was there one way or another so yeah, I don't get hung up in that debate whether it's one page or 26 Mm. pages or whatever but We just knew from reading that one page and then all the other commentary and that Mm. around it where it was going you know and you know you hear truth-telling treaty and Mm. Macarrada and all that sort of thing
0: Um, The most incarcerated race on earth with no contextualization. Yeah, you know when I've had Aboriginal mm. women saying to me They honestly think there should be more of their young men for their behavior, Mm -hmm. Um, and and we've talked about that. So um, the thing that worries me about this is I made this point the other day, and, and you were present at a public meeting. This is a free country. And if the prime minister believes, and if the Minister for Aboriginal Indigenous Affairs believes, if the cabinet believes, if politicians believe, yes, we should have the voice, treaty, reparations, truth-telling, this is a free country. You are to us to say, I believe these are good things and we should do it. But it's all surrounded by an attempt to deny what is the plain intent of the Uluru Statement, which is to progress these very things. And and as you say, it doesn't matter whether it's the one page or the multi-page. What I'm driving at here is that this looks like an effort to keep the mugs in the dark and not be really honest and upfront about what you're trying to do. And that strikes at the heart of trust. And you'll never get the country operating properly if we continue to break trust.
1: Agreed. It, it will keep people squabbling. Tell me... And you know, a, hmm. a house divided against itself can't yeah. stand.
0: And that's, the, that's what makes me weep as an Australian. Yeah. And we've talked about it, you know, the constant division rather than the focus on hmm. what unites us. Um, the, ad, the idea of, um, of macarata—it's a new word for a lot of people—or a macarata commission. What does it likely entail, and what does macarata really mean?
1: Look, uh, like many words, there's different meanings attached to it. You know, some will uh, rightly say that you know it meant putting a spear through someone's thigh, and of course that's not what they mean today. But you know, that was one use mm. of the word. Again, I'm no expert, but uh, it generally it means you know coming together peace after a struggle. Okay? so you know it, they're using it to um, say we, you know we want we've had a struggle, we want peace so that's my understanding of it. again, it's a it's a term that needs to be unpacked and it can be in- interpreted differently. so it's what psychologists would say we need it operationalized, you know what are the specific component steps of it?
0: That raises the question then, fair enough. Um, if, you, if you adopt that approach, but it raises the question as to at what point, see, forgiveness, if I can put it that way, it's a, it's a two-way street in a way. If I've wronged you and I say I'm sorry, it's not going to work unless you say oh, I accept the apology, let's move on. Mm-hmm. And that's what's worrying me about this. And also, lo-
1: also, if you say sorry, it should be you who have decided to, to say sorry, not you've been forced or coerced into it, it should come from the heart. You say sorry because you want to. I agree sorry. with that. Mm. Um, but the well, point I like is yeah. a lot of people are being pushed in forced into this mm-hmm. you know say sorry.
0: Well a lot of them probably feel <coughs> too that they've not done anything wrong. Hmm. You know I've not dispossessed anybody. No. Generations before me you know there may hmm. be some arguments around that. Yeah but look
1: and at that public meeting <coughs> which we were both at I just because the way I didn't plan to say this the of the way the conversation was going, Mm. I said to the group there, look what your great great grandfathers may have done to my great great grandfathers has nothing to do with how I relate to you today.
0: Mm. Mm. But we know here, it was in the weekend press, of two little four-year-olds coming home very upset because they'd been asked to apologise to the rest of the class Mm. and um, you know apparently uh, we've been terrible uh, and we're really upset about
1: it. Mm. But they've done nothing wrong. Uh, th- and That is absurd. If, you know, if it really happened like that, that is absolutely absurd and ridiculous and shameful. And it just
0: brings up divisions and hurts that are not contextualised so it can't be worked through
1: mm.
0: and becomes part of the power struggle which in the end disadvantages everyone. Anthony, you've, you've given us in thought through ways non-emotional ways, caring ways, no-name-calling sort of ways, why you have reservations about the voice. Thank
1: you for that. Any further thoughts on it? No, just that it's... Well, yes, Every, everyone wants to help Aboriginal Australians. We know that. On the referendum day, you'll have this question, I can't remember the exact words of it, but for a lot of people i think they're going to be thinking in their minds you know they'll read these words but then the question will be do you want to help aboriginal people yeah that's not the question that's not what you're voting on yeah so i would just say to people on the referendum day just be aware of what you are what your yes or no is going for you know particularly yes you're not voting for yes i want to help aboriginal people it's, you're voting for yes i want this thing called the voice mm. enshrined in the constitution now if it was That enshrinement then directly led to improving the health and well-being of Aboriginal people. Well, then I'd be voting for it myself, but I have not heard the plan for how that will be. And what I do find amusing is we've had some leaders, should I name them? I guess so. We've had someone like Mr Albanese on the project and elsewhere trying to articulate how it will help Aboriginal people, and he wasn't successful at it. There was no gotcha moments, they weren't trying to get him, they were asking him direct questions and he was not able to explain it. Similarly, Linda Burney has also been asked how it will help Aboriginal people. And, you know, we just get the same platitudes, it will give them voice, that sort of thing. Well, they already have voices. So I have not seen this clear plan of how this thing called the voice will translate into better health and well, better outcomes for Indigenous people. If someone was to show it to me, I might, But yes, but I have not seen it yet. And the leaders haven't been able to do it. So that's my final, I've used my voice to talk about the voice.
0: Thomas Sowell is plainly saying in America, and he's such a giant that no one dares challenge him, of course, intellectually, that there are people who have an interest in maintaining racism, which as we've discussed, is just another form of hatred, which destroys hater and hated, who has an incentive to keep racism alive, do you think?
1: Well, I will at least keep the claims of racism mm. going, because I don't think it's a big problem here in Australia. The, the claims, the allegations of it is a bigger problem than mm. the racism itself, and there are people who benefit from that. Uh, you know, some academics, for example, have made nice little careers for themselves of publishing papers on, you know, every problem facing Indigenous Australians is due to this ongoing systemic, endemic racism. And yet I don't see the, any good evidence for that. Um, they might say, well, you know, when you look at all the disadvantage, that's just obviously from racism. No, it's not obviously mm. from racism. It, it, it puts, it's a disincentive to, for Indigenous people to want to try and get ahead. If they think, well, you know, why, why would I try? Racism's only going to beat me at the end of the day. So, and that just keeps people down. And when you've got Indigenous people kept down, That creates jobs for people who have then got to manage them.
0: I must tell you, I had an extraordinary moment on the ABC, our publicly funded broadcaster, on one of their premier programs, where the compere was mounting the argument that all of the problems in Indigenous communities stem from frontier violence. And I was arguing that that does not mean that Aboriginal men in particular don't have a responsibility to change their behaviour and to be protective of particularly the, the, the mothers of their children and their children. And what was absolutely extraordinary to me, and I, 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 to this day I recall it with great anger, to be honest, was that there was another very fine young Indigenous man on the panel that I was on. He was a very gentle fellow. And he's sitting beside me saying, no, to the compare. you're wrong. John's right on this. An Indigenous person saying, my people must accept responsibility, must accept agency, Noel Pearson used to call it. But there was a sophisticated, well-to-do, well-paid, I'll say it, white woman Hmm. saying, I was relying on anecdotal evidence over all of the academic research that shows that it's the result of frontier violence. Hmm. But here's an indigenous person, lived experience, saying softly, and all I wanted to do was to say, all right, Madam Compe, my friend thinks you're wrong and I'm right. Hmm. But I didn't feel I wanted to do that to that young man.
1: It left a
0: really bad taste in my
1: mouth. The academic research is often, often it's not just research, it's it's just claims, which gets published in a journal. And then once it's in a journal, particularly when you throw in these these terms, peer-reviewed, people think it takes on this aura of truth. Very often it's just a person's opinion who's quoted someone else who agrees with them. Oh, it's, you know, due to colonisation and that sort of thing. Well, again, if... You know the violence that we see is due to colonisation. How can you explain why is it we see so many good indigenous men yeah. who look after their families? How did they dodge the colonisation bullet? So you know, it's, it's a little bit like so you know, if an astrologer said to me, "Leo's are all creative people," well, what about all the Leos who aren't creative, and all the non-Leos who are? creative, you can't just mm. cherry pick something to support mm. a narrative. There's a lot of evidence against this view that the violence we see today is the result of colonisation.
0: Well, this young man was actually saying to me, and then in conversation mm. afterwards, it was very interesting. He was saying for years, I played the victim card and then I realised how hopeless that was and I was really selling myself short mm. by not accepting responsibility. Agency. That's what he was actually saying. Mm. He said, I got nowhere when I thought it was somebody else's fault and I could blame them. It was only when I realised I had responsibilities and I had to mm. shape up that I was able to pick my life up. And he was on the program because he was making a success of his life. Mm. And then the program doesn't give him the opportunity to explain to the listeners. Didn't fit their narrative. Didn't fit the narrative. Yeah. And that is a terrible conduct. I'll be, I'll be blunt again
1: of so much of what now happens at the ABC. Yeah. But... Uh They've um, been a a contributor to a lot of the problems. You know, look, to their credit, I see sometimes they do say some good things. They do report on some unpleasant things in Aboriginal communities. That's good, but they need to be doing a lot more
0: of that. Now you see senior people at the ABC, though, telling their reporters how to shut down parts of the debate. Mm. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. And I salute you for your quiet, calm courage.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us.